0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com.
1: Our reading this morning is from Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so a writer, a
0: psychologist and a writer named Lauren Slater, a couple years back, a few years back, wrote an article called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And in it, she said, you know, it hasn't been disputed much until recently that high self-esteem that she defines simply as liking yourself a lot and holding a positive opinion of your actions and your, your capabilities, that it's essential essential to well-being, and that its counterpart, low self-esteem, is responsible for crime and substance, and even extreme cases, as she mentions, like murder, rape, and even terrorism. And so for decades, everyone from government task forces to the education system to life coaches have really joined forces to create these self-esteem programs in order to promote positive views of self, self self-praise, self-congratulations. And she says this, this all makes so much sense that we have not thought to question it. The less confidence you have, the worse you do. The more confidence you have, the, the better you do. But she said, there's one glaring problem, it's just not true. She began to study the lives of repeating offenders and began to take them through standard self-esteem tests. And she said, the fact is that we put them through every self-esteem test that we have and there's no evidence that they secretly feel bad about themselves. And in her own words, she says, these men are racist or violent because they do not feel bad enough about themselves. And then she concludes with this jarring Conclusion, which are her words, don't kill the messenger. They're her words, not mine. She said this if anything, people with high self esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self esteem. I mean, we've said this for years. What kills community? Pride. Pride. As research and our own personal experience, and even more importantly, as the scriptures continue to show us, we do not need high self-esteem, what we need is honest self-assessment. Look with me again in verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think, pause there, that word think is literally translated to esteem, not to esteem himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Let your view of yourself be sober. Now, what's something that you can only do sober that you can't do drunk? Well, a lot of things, turns out. (laughs) One of those is seeing clearly. There's a term, I'm told, uh, called beer goggles. And when an individual is intoxicated, everyone in the room begins to look a little bit more attractive than they actually are. And Paul is saying, you have become intoxicated by your own reflection. You are drunk on love for self, and your view of self has gotten skewed. Your view of yourself has got to become clear and honest and accurate. Now, we're not talking about too low. We're not talking about self-hatred and self-deprecation. That is off the table here. What we're talking about is a view of self that is not too high, knowing who you are knowing where you are uniquely gifted and how you're designed by God and and where you are strong and where you are weak and where you succeed and and where you fail and on and on and on and and as Paul points out here this honest view of self in the long run leads to a sense of belonging and purpose passion and even overall happiness or cheerfulness is the word that he uses Now, an important thing to recognize about the passage that we're looking at today is that they come, these verses come directly after what we looked at last week, and that's vision of a transformed life in verses 1 and 2. And that is really important. What it means for us today is that the changed life that Paul talks about in verses 1 and 2 happens within the Christian community that he talks about in verses 3 through 8. I cannot renew my mind or my life without full participation in the body of Christ. Or let's say it another way. Change, positive, lasting, true change, hinges really on three things if you're taking notes. The gospel we believe, the group we belong to, and the gifts we bring. Let's look first at the gospel we believe. Now, again, in verse 3, we're told that our view of ourself has got to be, quote, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, one way of interpreting this passage is to say that your view of yourself has got to be based on the amount of faith that you have. The measure of faith means the amount of your faith. But that's problematic. Because anyone that's been a Christian long enough knows that our faith ebbs and flows. The measure of my faith, the amount of my faith today is not gonna be necessarily the amount of my faith tomorrow. And what can end up happening with that idea is that if I'm lacking faith in a season, well, what happens to my own worth? Does it decrease with my faith? Many commentators point out actually the more likely interpretation is this. You should measure your life by what you believe, not how much faith you have, but what you believe. The Christian faith, the objective Christian faith that does not ebb and flow, is to become the standard measurement of your life. All that you have received through trusting in Jesus Christ should now be the way that you determine your own personal sense of worth and significance. It's Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that now make your life add up. It's the cross and the empty tomb that now defines you, that has the final word over you. For the Christian, identity is received, not achieved. Who you are is not something that you make of yourself. Who you are is assigned by God which means that you are not the sum total of your accomplishments. You are not defined by what people think about you or what people say about you. You're not even defined about by what you think about you or what you do for you. For the Christian, you are forever defined by who God has called you to be. God's voice has the final say over who you are, and God's voice over his children is this. You are loved. You are cherished. You are recognized. You are accepted. You are chosen. You are approved. You are forgiven. You are whole. You're mine. That's who you are. J.B. Phillips translates this passage like this. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. So what that means is that we now, through Christ, are freed from having to entertain exaggerated ideas of ourselves. We don't have to lie about who we are. We don't have to pretend to be anything. We don't have to compromise our convictions and our values to become something not in light of the beauty and love that God has placed on each of us through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no need for hype when you've gotten God's holiness. Amen? There's a scene in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, part two, the the second sort of often overlooked portion, where Christiana Uh, Christiana and some of her fellow travelers visit uh, the home of the interpreter. They're on their journey to the king, but they stop at the interpreter's house uh, in, in search of provisions. And as they're about to leave, she's invited, her and her companions are invited to take a bath in the garden bath. And it's in order to really wash off the dust and the filth from the journey. It's a picture of forgiveness and an illustration of baptism. And after she's been cleaned, the interpreter offers offers these women clean, fine, white linen garments to replace their old rags. And it's a picture of being clothed in the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the narrator captures the scene beautifully when he says this. When the women were dressed in this way, they were awestruck by each other. For neither could see the glory each one had in herself, but they could see it in each other. Because of this, they began to honor each other more than themselves. For you are fairer than I, said one. While the other said, you are more becoming than I. See what's happening? They're they're all amazed, but not by their own beauty. They, They couldn't see their own beauty. They had to trust that it was true of them but they were able to recognize it in each other. And this is what the gospel does in our lives. God clothes us with something greater than self-esteem. He clothes us in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the very brilliance and beauty of the spotless Lamb of God with the very reputation of God's anointed, exalted Son, Jesus. And as a result, we are changed. God puts that on us. God puts that within us. And then what the Spirit does is He transfigures us. What the Spirit is at work within believers doing is causing us to become what we've already been declared to be. What is sanctification? The Spirit making sure that we step into what God has already provided for us in Jesus Christ. But not in a way Where we can necessarily see it in ourselves this is where the struggle comes because i talk to a lot of people that struggle to see how god is changing their own lives that's okay and you're not alone because this glory that god clothes us in is too beautiful and too brilliant to see in the mirror this glory that god clothes us in is too brilliant to see in our own narcissism and in our own navel-gazing. It's a glory that is best seen through the eyes of others. Let me say it this way. It's a glory that shines brightest in community, which leads us to our second point, the group we belong to, the group we belong to. Now, our process of transformation hinges on our belonging. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it begins with its most famous question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. To trust in Jesus is to die to autonomy, To trust in Jesus is to die to self-reliance, self-confidence, independence, and to be raised to a life of belonging, of reliance, of relationship, of support. But the question for us today is this, how do we practically experience our belonging to Jesus? I belong to Jesus, but what does that look like? How do I experience that in my everyday life? Well, the Bible makes it absolutely clear. This is experienced through belonging to his church. Look with me again in verses four through five. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The NIV actually translates the passage like this. And each member belongs to all the others. We belong to each other. So think about this. Belonging to Jesus and belonging to his church are one and the same. They're one and the same. Paul uses the illustration of a body to describe this. If we are one with Jesus, who is described as the head of the church, then we are to be one with his body, which is the church. To be united with Jesus is to be united with his church, and the inverse is also true. To be at odds with his body is to be at odds with the head. Let's stretch the illustration a little bit further. To have a casual, moderate relationship to the body of Christ is to express a casual, moderate relationship with Jesus. They're one and the same. You can't have one without the other. I want us to consider a few scenarios that may strike or hit kind of close to home for some of us today. I want you to consider a person professing their love for someone like this. This is a made-up scenario. I love your personality. I love your emotions and your enthusiasm. I think about you all the time. But I don't really like your body. It's flawed. It's sort of ugly. Uh, It's not what I expected. And if you were to marry me, I, I promise that I will commit to the idea of you. I will commit to the thoughts of you. I will, you know, theoretically cherish you forever. I will listen to songs about you. I'll read books of, about you. I will I'll read all your letters, and I'll call you morning and evening, but I'm not interested in you as a whole. I won't, and I can't commit to seeing you, holding you, embracing you, serving you, caring for you, or really being with you. If someone that we love came to us and said, hey, this person professed their love for me like this, you would say, run. Cut bait and run. What are you doing? And you how much we excuse this when it comes to our covenant relationship to Jesus Christ. In marital terms, we would call this abandonment. Today, we come up with all kinds of excuses for how we interact with God's church like this. Or for some, a very opposite problem. It's, I like your body. Oh my gosh, I like your body a lot. And I like all the benefits of your body just without the commitment. Why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free? Am I right? I want the perks of the body without the promise to the body. Or the devastating way that People sort of just disappear, they they ghost the church. They were in community, they were involved, and then they just disappear with no trace. What about the times that we like sat together and wept together and we were together through thick and thin and through difficult situations and our lives were so interconnected and now you're gone. And then all of a sudden, you show back up when something crazy or devastating happens in your life when you need something from us. We were together, and then you ghost me, and now you're back to take. The, the, the uh, emotional whiplash that, that inflicts on people. I know this is getting real, but this happens every day. No one benefits from these sort of relationships, it's unhealthy, it's volatile and it's potentially emotionally abusive. And the point that I'm trying to make is I'm not trying to shame anyone here, but the point I'm trying to make is all of our non-committal ways that we relate to the church simply reinforce sinful behaviors and attitudes. And this way of relating to the church is just simply not conducive to experiencing the transformed life that God promises No one receives and experiences transformation like this. These verses here in in Romans 12 are really the foundation for our membership process where we, you know, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ can formally commit to one another, not in a way that makes you a Christian, hear me, not in a way that makes you a better top tier Christian, but in a way that faithfully, we believe faithfully expresses the Christian life. And mark my word, I've never told a single person here, you have to commit to Reality Church Stockton. I've never told anyone that you have to make your dedication here, but I can confidently say that a believer's dedication has to be somewhere, to some local church. If it's not this church, some church, somewhere where you can be known and know others, somewhere you can serve and be served, somewhere where people can count on you and you can count on them, somewhere you can commit to to giving and to receiving, somewhere where people know your story, they can call you on your stuff and to point you to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, somewhere where you can grow in community. Now I understand, I understand that community brings a lot of mixed emotions, there's a lot of hope and a lot of joy wrapped up in this. And let's be honest for a second, there's also a lot of fear, hesitation, and hurt. And especially since for many people in the church, it was close, intimate relationships that were the source of your deepest wounds and fears. It wasn't strangers that inflicted such deep pains. It was people that you knew, people that you trusted, people that were close to you. And because of that, for many, there's a serious, real, Legitimate, legitimate hesitation to ever putting yourself into sort of that proximity again. I get it. I get it. But what we need to remember is this that we are relational people that have been formed in the image of a relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made for community, we were made to flourish in community. And yes, relationships were the place of sin and manipulation and hurt but relationships will also be the place of forgiveness of building trust and of healing look around you're looking at a group full of people that have been hurt and wounded and manipulated and yet have found the hope of jesus christ within community again have learned to forgive have learned to build trust again have learned to experience the healing that is ours in jesus christ the hurts come from relationship but it's also the place of healing it's a place of healing Belonging is where we experience really the healing embrace of Jesus Christ. I wish I felt Jesus. I wish I could see Jesus. I wish I could could hear his voice. I wish wish he would wrap his arms around me. Have you overlooked the, the very tangible, real experience of his embrace that is right in front of you? And it's within honest and loving community that we learned and really find the courage to pry open those closed off areas of our heart that have gotten stuck, those areas of our heart that, has, that, that have grown bitter, those areas of our hearts that are, are really, really raw. It's where we find renewal. And it's in our belonging that we begin to experience a clearer honest view of ourselves, one that Romans 12 says actually leads to a transformed life. Like the women in Pilgrim's Progress who began to point out in others that which they could not see in themselves. We need others that see us and that know us and that remind us of who we are and remind us of who we are becoming through the Spirit's power, amen? Let's look finally at the gifts that we bring. The gifts that we bring. Paul is trying to get a really important point across, and the point is this, that while we were created equally and we have been loved by God equally, we are designed differently. Loved equally, designed differently. We are all an important part of the body of Christ, but we all have different functions different roles. We all bring something different that uniquely adds to the value of the whole. Look with me again in verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I want you to see this. Being different from someone else is not something to resent. Being different from everyone else is actually a gift from God to receive. The grace of God frees us. This is so simple, we may miss it. The grace of God frees us to be us. It frees us from trying to be someone else. Grace releases us from living a life where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people wishing that I was like so-and-so and wishing I was like this person. According to Romans 12, it's actually grace that you're not that other person. It's actually grace that you're you. One author put it this way, today you are you, That is truer than true. There's no one alive who is youer than you. That was in one of his uncanceled, not canceled books, by the way. Um, See how how much I I want us to see this, okay? See how much greater that is than self-esteem. That's humble confidence. That's being content with being me, how I'm gifted and how I'm not, where I have strengths and where I have weakness, not allowing those those areas in my life to cause me insecurity and want to pull away from community, but actually drawing me into community to see that other people's strengths compensate for my weaknesses and my strengths complement their weaknesses. Together we experience wholeness. And where we specifically differ, Paul tells us, is in our spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a special grace that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit to every single Christian in order to contribute and bless and encourage the body of Christ. This is not something that's for personal gain. This is not so that I can feel good about myself. It's for encouraging and blessing and growing the church. And what he does here in this little short passage is he actually lists various gifts given to the church. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a very comprehensive list. And so let's look at it again. If you could pull up verses 6 through 8 for me one more time. I think it was the last slide. He lists these grace gifts. The one right before that, please. Thanks. The first gift is prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy. Prophecy is speaking under divine inspiration. It's been likened today to anointed preaching of God's word. He also lists serving, practical care, administrative duties, essentially seeing the need and then meeting that need. Teaching. We have a lot of people in our church with the gift of teaching. That's what many of our kids' ministry teachers right now are utilizing to capture the minds and the imaginations of our kids with the Word of God. Exhortation, which means encouragement. It can actually also mean to counsel, to care. The gift of generosity. This is extraordinary giving. No one could say, I don't have the gift of generosity. I don't need to give. This is above and beyond normal giving and leading, inspiring people to follow, especially into uncharted territory. And then mercy ministry, which is empathy and and care for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable, the sick and the suffering, those who are most vulnerable among us. Now, I want us to consider that list. Do Do you see how important all of these things are? Each part, each member, each gift, indispensable. And imagine if just one of those components were removed. If just one of those things were removed from the body of Christ, it would be off balance. Things would get skewed. Each is important. And so as we wind down here, what I wanna do is I wanna help us to discern what those gifts are in our lives, because as I mentioned, the Spirit has entrusted spiritual gifts to every single believer. But I would venture to say that there are probably many among us that don't actually know what those gifts are, or how we're uniquely gifted. So how can we tell how God has gifted us? I want to give us three very brief, simple instructions and then be done. The first is this. You've got to examine. You've got to examine. Paul welcomes us to examine our lives to sober judgment. This is not morbid introspection. This is not excessive um, self-reflection. This is just an honest look at self. And what Paul is encouraging us to do is to consider the areas that God has given us passion and ability. We we, we need to ask questions like, you know, what experiences or training or deep desires do I have that would align with the mission and vision of the church? I, I love how Frederick Buckner put it. He said, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Have you found that place yet? I I know in my own life, and from talking with believers in this church, when, when that clicks, it doesn't answer every question. It doesn't settle everything. But there's a sense of competence and courage and spiritual power when you realize those deep longings and desires and how they connect with the world's deep hurts and needs. So examine. Secondly, explore. There are various places in the scriptures that describe a number of other spiritual gifts, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Peter talks about them. Now, I was tempted, time would not allow, but I was tempted nonetheless to begin to list all of the spiritual gifts that the Bible uh, reads or um, tells us. But you're welcome. I'm not going to do that. And here's why. Because you should explore those things for yourself. I was tempted to lay them out this morning, but I got the sense that that you need, you really do need, to invest the time and energy of searching God's Word for yourself and, and learning what the Bible says about these gifts that are given to every believer. If this is really this important, you ought to know And really, the best way to explore these gifts is in community. Here's another reason I didn't want to make the long list, because we make the long list and we're tempted to say, okay, I'm that, I'm that, and I'm that. When in actuality, spiritual gifts are best identified by others. Remember the women in Pilgrim's Progress. Others see us better than ourselves. And it's one thing to say, You know, I think I'm gifted in this area. I think I've got these abilities. It's an entirely different and entirely more empowering process for someone to come along and say, I affirm this in your life. I see this gift. I see this way that God has wired you. I see this way that God has gifted you. You should run after that. Empowering. And then finally, you guys still with me? Exercise. Exercise. When it comes to spiritual gifts, there's a very simple instruction. Verse 6, let's use them. What do we do with these gifts? I don't know, use them? Are they ours to hoard? Are they ours to keep? Are they ours to protect? Are they ours to preserve? Are they ours to think about and admire? No, they're ours to use, to simply use. And the way that the human body grows, I'm told at least, and is strengthened is through exercise. And likewise, we spiritually grow, we we experience change, through exercising our spiritual gifts as well. And so sometimes, for those who don't know what those gifts are, or feel a little clumsy in them, you just gotta get in there, you just gotta use them, you gotta take risks, and as you begin to exercise those gifts, as you begin to exercise those abilities, it will become clear, I'm gifted in this area, and I'm not gifted in this area. And that's okay, but there's only one way to know, by exercising it, by trying. And so let me conclude with just asking a few questions of us today. This is very practical and pastoral. Are you using your gifts? Simple instruction, but profound. Are you using them? Are you allowing your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger to meet in your life? Are you offering are you offering God your leftover energy, your leftover resources, your leftover time on Sundays or, you know, every other Sunday? Or are you giving him, as Paul would tell us, leads us to a transformed life, are you giving him your entire self as a living sacrifice? Only you can answer that. Now what I want to do is I want to conclude by reading and praying uh, a famous prayer called the Wesley Covenant Prayer. And you can agree in your hearts, you can agree out loud, you can just wait till the end to agree with the amen to make sure it's a legit prayer. I don't know, but I want to pray this over us today. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are mine, and I am yours. So be it. Amen. Amen.